0: Father, we confess that things eye has not seen, ear has not heard, things which have never entered into the heart of man, all the things that you have prepared for us. But we know that you have revealed them to us by the Spirit. And So Father, we are here this morning to hear from you as your Spirit illumined people to be changed and transformed by your word. Open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you again to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. A whole lot of things that I did not previously know about myself began to become clear to me after I got married. I learned, for example, that I tend to get withdrawn from relationships whenever I'm stressed or tired. And to add insult to injury, I'm not a morning person, which means as a matter of routine, I only like to grunt And don't like to talk anytime before around 9 a.m. Now, that wasn't such a big deal when I was a single guy. And when I had roommates who were other single guys, some of you know my good friend Barry Jocelyn, we lived together for many years as as single guys and other guys. And uh, when I was single and I was living with other guys, I could roll out of bed, go into the kitchen and grunt and, you know, just say, move. Don't touch my cereal, your breath stinks, whatever. Um, It didn't really matter. We were still good, even if there was no other conversation. It doesn't work that way with a wife. Move, don't touch my cereal, your breath stinks, uh, goes over really badly, okay? Not that I ever actually said those exact words. But usually for me, I don't even say those kinds of things. My default morning mode is merely to be silent and say nothing and to get irritated if anything interrupts my routine. So you can imagine how pleasant that is for everybody in the family. Susan thought I was mad at her for the first year of our marriage because I was so boorish in the mornings. And and the problem was exacerbated by the fact that she's a morning person. And so she is peppy and, and awake and ready to have lots of meaningful conversations in the morning, right about the time I'm ready for everybody to leave me alone. And during that honeymoon phase of our marriage, she didn't say anything for like a year to me about it. But at some point, the new car smell wore off and she started to bring this up. And she started to communicate these things to me. And I had to deal with the fact that I have a tendency to be churlish in the morning. And guess what? I still have to deal with a personal tendency to be churlish and curt in the mornings today. When I came downstairs today, Susan and Denny were the only two that were there. I have to tell myself, greet them. (laughs) It's not natural. Because that's just not what I do. And the thing is, I didn't even know this about myself until I was married. That was just, for me, normal. And it never occurred to me that normal might be a problem for the other people who have to live around me. Some of the most important things about ourselves are often imperceptible to us. Things that cause disruption to relationships, character flaws, offensive habits and manners. Many of us are completely unaware that there are aspects of our personality that are not exactly a walk in the park for the people who have to live around us. But the closer that we get to someone else, oftentimes the more those flaws tend to be exposed. And the things that we were not even aware of being issues, we find out can turn into big issues over time. How many of you have ever experienced something like this in your own relationships? You have a relationship with someone, maybe a spouse, a parent, a roommate, and the relationship exposes personality differences which are not just differences, but may indeed turn out to be personality flaws. Flaws that actually undermine those relationships and create a need for reconciliation in those relationships. And until those flaws are pointed out to you and made known to you, you may sense no need at all for anything to be fixed. And as far as you're concerned, everything is just fine. If it is true that we don't know ourselves well enough to know all the ways in which we offend and alienate others, do you think there is a chance that perhaps we may be missing all the ways that we offend and alienate God? Do you think our self-understanding, apart from grace, if, if it has some limitations to it, do you think that there might be some limitations in our own understanding of God, some limitations in our own understanding of sin and our own need for reconciliation with him. If we often don't understand ourselves as well as we ought to, do you think there's a chance that perhaps we don't understand God and his ways as well as we ought to What if there are things about ourselves and about God's plan of salvation that we cannot even begin to know or apprehend? How are we going to know those necessary things? I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse, verses 6 through 16. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. Those questions about how we are going to know those things, are exactly the kinds of things that Paul is answering in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. People will not come to know the gospel unless it is told to them, unless it is revealed to them, and even then they often reject it. Why? Because often people prefer the wisdom of men over the wisdom of God. And we looked last time I was preaching this text at the first five verses of chapter 2, and Paul stresses there that he did not preach to them human wisdom. In these verses, 6 through 10, he's clarifying that what he is preaching to them, however, is in fact wisdom. It's just not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. And that wisdom is nothing less than the message of the cross itself, the gospel. That's what he's preaching to them. And so Paul is going to highlight three things about the gospel as God's secret wisdom that has to be made known to us. Three things. Here it is. The gospel hidden, the gospel revealed, and the gospel rejected. Verses 6 through 9 is the gospel hidden. Verses 10 through 13 is the gospel revealed. And verses 14 through 16 is the gospel rejected. So the first thing, verses 6 through 9, is the gospel hidden. Everybody look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And literally, we might render this verse something along these lines. We speak wisdom among the mature. But not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Paul's being ironic in this text. He's saying, look, you all are saying you want wisdom. I've got wisdom for you. Here's some wisdom for you. But this is not the kind of wisdom that you're asking before because you're looking for human wisdom, the wisdom of this age. You're looking for the kind of wisdom that the elite want to know and to have. And that they would recognize as wisdom. But Paul says the elite and all of the elite's so-called vain wisdom is passing away. It's coming to nothing. And so Paul's saying, I'm speaking wisdom, but not that kind of wisdom. The wisdom of the elites of society. Rather, what does he say? Look at verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now we need to meditate on this for just a few moments. What is this secret and hidden wisdom of God? He's already told us in chapter 1 and verses 23 to 24, He said, We preach Christ crucified, Christ, the power of God, and what? The wisdom of God. So God's wisdom therefore, is nothing less than the gospel itself, the message of Christ crucified and raised for sinners. When you read Paul talking about God's wisdom, he's not talking generically about a character trait here. He's talking about God's wisdom in the gospel, in the message of the gospel. But Paul says that God's wisdom in the gospel is hidden. And literally, he says it this way. He says, we speak... God's wisdom in a mystery which has been hidden. Now, it's unfortunate if you're reading the ESV, they don't use the term mystery to translate the term here. But that term mystery is is an important word. It's a technical term in Paul's writings. And it's important for us to see it in translation. A mystery refers to something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed uh, through the gospel. Something that was once hidden, perhaps in the old covenant, but now it's been revealed through the gospel, through Jesus and the apostles. The particulars of the gospel, in other words, were unknown to God's people until Jesus showed up and made this gospel known to them and to his apostles. But notice what Paul says about this wisdom in a mystery. Okay, it's not currently a mystery. It's, it was a mystery before the gospel. But notice what he says about this wisdom in a mystery. He calls this wisdom that which God decreed before before the ages for our glory. That word translated as decreed is okay, but I think we can actually do a little bit better than that. It's the Greek word, here's a Greek word, proorizo, okay? If you've ever heard that word before, it's usually translated as predestined. And if you're looking at almost any other translation, it probably says predestined, which means to decide upon something beforehand, to predetermine something. So God, this verse says, predestines both the plan and the people. God predestines the gospel for his people's glory, this text says. That confirms what the other apostles say about the plan of God. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28 For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So predestination in this verse refers to God's plan of salvation. God destined it to take place. Everything that involved in Jesus' saving work for us. But this text is also confirming what Paul says elsewhere about God's predestining people. Romans 8, 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. People sometimes ask me if I believe in predestination. And I've always thought of this as a very strange question. Predestination is a word in the Bible. Of course, I believe in predestination. And so do you if you believe in the Bible. Now, people may have a difference of opinion about what they think that means. But we all believe in this, okay? Predestination is taught in the Bible. It's right there. And it says here that God predestined the plan of salvation which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that God predestined the people to be saved by that plan. And notice this. When did he predestine those things? Before all ages, which means from before the foundation of the world. That means that this hidden wisdom was the biggest secret of all time. God not only formed this plan in secret from people, he formed this plan before there were any people. How would any person, therefore, come to know this plan? If he forms the plan in eternity, before people, are even created, how would they ever come to know this plan that he's predestined before all ages for their glory? The only way they're going to know this Is for God to disclose it to them in a special revelation. That's the only way. He has to show his hand or else we don't see it. Why? Because look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now think about that. It's very clear that the world and its wisdom did not come to know God through its own wisdom, did it? Nobody figured this plan out. Nobody looked into the secret counsels of God and just deduced it with their own brains. The world through its own wisdom did not come to know the wisdom of God. All the human wisdom in the world could not have conceived this plan. There are just some things that we cannot see unless they are revealed to us. Do you see what I'm saying here? And the Roman and Jewish elites who collaborated to crucify Jesus show us and prove that their human wisdom did not enable them to see the messianic reality that they were crucifying. But look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now that verse is most likely a loose quotation from Isaiah 64 in verse 4 and maybe a little bit from Isaiah 65 in verse 16. And you've probably heard this text used before as a proof text for how awesome heaven is going to be. What No eye has seen, ear has heard, or never entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So sometimes people use this verse for that. Listen, heaven is going to be awesome, but this verse isn't mainly about that. This verse is about the plan, the gospel plan that God has predestined to save his predestined people. A plan that no human eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor any person ever came close to imagining how God would reconcile the world to himself through Christ. Nobody thought of this. This is the gospel hidden. It's just something that is beyond us unless God reveals it to us. Our own limitations and sinfulness keep us from seeing what we need to see in order to be saved. So God has to make it known to us through the gospel. That's the point. You remember when I said that I tend to get withdrawn from relationships when I'm stressed out or tired. Well, that goes well beyond issues with not being a morning person. Some years ago, early on in my time here at Kenwood, as one of the elders, Jim and I were talking on the phone, and he shared with me that one of the other there was a problem in my relationship with one of the other elders at Kenwood. Nobody in this room, somebody who's gone long gone now. There was no theological disagreement between us. There was no open conflict between us. There was no falling out over any particular issue, pastoral or otherwise, between us. But this other elder had told Jim that he found me to be aloof, difficult to know, and even standoffish. Surprise, surprise. And listen, I had no problem actually with him talking to Jim about it. I I think he was just trying to figure out how to crack this nut, how to fix a situation in which there was no particular issue or contention, just my personality. He just wanted to know how to break through. And so Jim's telling me this on the phone and immediately I feel terrible about it. Um, It was a revelation to me. I didn't even, I didn't even know there was a problem. I wanted to call up uh, my brother and apologize and figure out how to make it right. That's what I wanted to do. But also, I immediately wasn't all that surprised to learn that I was coming off this way towards this brother. My own marriage, as I mentioned, had already revealed ways in which I'm predisposed to withdraw at certain times. And so I wasn't surprised that I was capable of, of, of such things. But still I did. I, I just didn't know that I was coming across that way. Even though I wasn't surprised to that, find out that I was. I didn't know it though until somebody else made it known to me and pointed it out to me. I didn't know that there was a need for a for a path to reconciliation until someone made it known to me. Do you see where I'm going with this? I have a hunch that I'm probably not the only dysfunctional human in this room right now. And maybe I'm not the only one who perceives how desperate they are for God to make known what we need most. Because here's the thing, what you and I need more than anything is for the path to life to be made plain to us. We need to know how sinful and needy we really are. We need to know how God has drawn near to us in Christ. We need made known to us how to repent of sin and to trust in him to be saved. We need someone to tell us a revelation to inform us everything that we need for life in godliness. Absent that revelation, everything is hidden. Hidden from us. Maybe some things, maybe some needs suggested in a natural revelation. But other than that, everything is hidden from us. And not only that, hidden from our neighbors. No one of your neighbors or of your loved ones or of your family or of your children is going to know that which they need to know most unless someone brings that message to them. Unless someone makes known this revelation to them, they are as needy as you and I were apart from grace. And God's plan for them to know that mystery is you and me. So this is the gospel hidden. These things that we are required to know are not obvious to us because of our limitations and because of our sinfulness. And so Paul speaks of the gospel hidden. But look what he also talks about. He talks about the gospel revealed. Look at verse 10. These things, the hidden things. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now I want you to notice that Paul says that God has made known his secret wisdom to us through the Spirit. There's a temptation here, uh, when you look at Paul talking about we and us, to read yourself into those pronouns. Um, I don't think that that is the correct way to read this, okay? Because Paul's going to start talking about you in a minute, the readers, his original readers, and then us by extension. When he's talking about we and us in this passage, I think he's talking about himself and perhaps in solidarity with the other apostolic preachers, okay? So he's not talking about all of us, Paul and his readers. He's talking about himself as an apostle and the other apostolic <coughs> preachers. So look what he says. He's saying that the Holy Spirit of God himself has revealed the things necessary for our salvation in the gospel. That wisdom was hidden from us and from the rulers of this age, but it's now known in the gospel. And the Spirit of God is uniquely suited to disclose God's wisdom to the apostles because the Spirit is God. Who better to disclose the secret and hidden plan of God than God himself? Look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. If I want to know what you are thinking, the best way for me to do that. And to know your thoughts is to ask you and to listen to you. Nobody has more access to your interior life than you do. In the same way, nobody knows God better than God. As God, the Spirit knows everything, even the depths of God, even plans that were predestined before all ages. So look at verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, remember who the we and us are. Who is it? It's Paul, the other apostles. Paul says that he and the other apostles and those who preached their message did not receive a spirit from the world. And thank God that they didn't. The world, through its wisdom, does not know God. It does not want to know God. That spirit of the world makes false gods and bids you to worship them. That is not the spirit that Paul and the other apostles received. No, they received revelation from the spirit of God himself. The one who searches the depths of God has disclosed himself uniquely to the apostles and the prophets. And he has done so in order that they might make known the manifold riches of God's grace. So look at verse 13. What does he say? And we impart this, what, this, this hidden message. We impart this message in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You know what that means? Paul's saying this, he's saying, we apostolic preachers, are, we speak Holy Spirit-inspired words to God's people, and we preach words from the Spirit to people possessed by the Spirit. That means that because the same Spirit that revealed the gospel to the apostles also resides in us, we also can understand and embrace the secret plan that God predestined for our glory from before all ages. You get the point here. Paul is trying to emphasize the work of the Spirit in getting the secret plan from heaven into our hearts. The secret plan from heaven is known by the Spirit because the Spirit is God. And the Spirit reveals himself to Paul and the other apostles. And Paul and the other apostles preach to the church. Their testimony is preserved for us, not because they're alive walking around today. It's preserved for us because of this. The apostolic prophetic word of the Spirit is left for us here. The Spirit of God in heaven speaking to the apostles and prophets of God, inscripturated now for the people of God who themselves possess the Spirit of God, which gives them an awareness and an ability to receive the things freely given to them by God. Do you see that? God's Spirit ensures that the revelation comes down to the apostles and that it comes into our hearts. The Spirit that reveals is the same Spirit that illumines us. You see the point here? We are a Holy Spirit people because the Spirit searches even the depths of God. My wife Susan's birthday is on August 1st, and um, in the 3rd or 4th, fourth year of our marriage, I got this really great idea for a birthday gift for her. Um, We still didn't have any kids, it was just the two of us. And back in those days, when the earth's crust was still hardening, um, we had these stores called Blockbuster. And if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to the store and rent the movie. And it was it was really kind of wonderful actually. Those stores were so kind of fun. But Those stores are gone now, but that's what we did back then. And for the first few years of our marriage, all we had was a VHS player, videotapes. Even though everybody and his brother already had a DVD player, we were still watching movies on on videotapes. And so on Susan's birthday that year, I got the really bright idea that what she really wanted was a brand new DVD player. So I shopped around for our first Burke family DVD player. And I was really excited to give her this gift, really excited to give her this gift. I could not wait to get this. I mean, I could not wait for her to uh, get this gift. This was going to be fun for the whole family, both of us. (laughs) And I knew that she would be thrilled. Well, it turned out that she was not so thrilled. It never crossed her mind to get a DVD player. She never asked for a DVD player. She didn't want a DVD player. And although she was as polite as possible in receiving the DVD player, she eventually let me in on something that hadn't quite occurred to me yet. That perhaps it wasn't her who wanted the DVD player, but me who wanted the DVD player. And perhaps that this wasn't the most thoughtful gift after all. She's very sweet and patient. It's just a little parentheses here. Dear young dumb husbands, let me learn you a lesson. When it comes to buying gifts for your wife, it helps if you find out what she wants. It's not so helpful if you buy her gifts that you want. If you project your own likes and preferences onto her, as if they were her likes and preferences, it won't matter how much you convince yourself that they're her likes and preferences. This will not come across as very thoughtful to your wife. It will come across as indifference to your wife. What's the best way for you to find out what she likes and prefers? You have to go to her. You have to listen to her. You have to know her. Can I suggest to you that what you and I think about God is of infinitely less worth than what God thinks about God? If you project onto God your own thoughts about the way he ought to behave and the way he ought to be, and you ignore the way that he has revealed himself to be, And the way that he has revealed himself to behave. You are showing your indifference to the God who is. And perhaps even contempt for the God who is. You cannot know God, his plan of salvation... Or all that he gives to you for life and godliness unless you are listening to the spirit of God. And you are not listening to the spirit of God if you are not listening to the word of God. How quick we are to project our own expectations onto God. And to dictate to him the way he ought to be. In order to fulfill our own self-absorbed agendas and preferences. Brothers and sisters, don't do this. Don't confuse the wisdom of men with the wisdom of God. Don't prefer the wisdom of men to the wisdom of God. Prefer the wisdom of God revealed to us through the Spirit and illumined in our hearts by the same Spirit. You are not going to know God better by making your own desires the measure of His being. You must know Him as He has revealed Himself to you through the Spirit. So there's the gospel hidden, the gospel revealed. Finally, there is this gospel rejected. Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you know who the natural person is in this text? It is the person who does not have the spirit. You are not born by nature with the spirit. By nature, you are a sinner devoid of spirit. The natural person is the one who doesn't have the spirit. It's the lost person. It is all those people in chapter one who believe that the message of the cross is foolishness. Verse 13, Paul says that the apostles speak spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. But the natural person is the person who does not have the spirit. They're not spiritual. What's the result of their not having the spirit? They do not accept the things of the spirit of God. Which means they don't accept God's revelation of himself in the gospel. The natural person does not believe the revelation given through the apostles even though it's a real revelation from God. The natural person won't receive it. Why? Look what the verse says. Because those things, those things from the Spirit are folly to him. They're foolishness to him. The person without the Spirit looks at the gospel and views it not for what it is, God's wisdom, but for what it isn't, foolishness. The natural person regards God's wisdom as rationally unworthy and as spiritually weak. And that person is not going to place his trust in or give his life for something that he believes to be rationally unworthy and spiritually weak, to be foolish. He doesn't understand it in the sense that he doesn't come to know it as it is, as a treasure. He doesn't view it as a treasure. He views it as worthless. Why? Because God's revelation is spiritually discerned, it says. Another way to translate that would be spiritually appraised. What does it mean to appraise something? It means to assess its value, right? The lost person does not have the ability to rightly assess the value of God's revelation through Christ. The lost person sees that revelation as worthless. That's why he rejects it. He doesn't have the spirit. Jesus spoke to this in his parable of the treasure hidden in the field. You remember Matthew 13, 44? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. What's God's kingdom like? It's like something that is hidden, this text says. It is more valuable than anything in the world, yet nobody sees its value because it's hidden from them. But what is the difference between the disciple of Jesus and the masses of people who ignore Jesus? The difference is that the disciple sees the value of the field because he sees the value of the treasure. And with joy, he will give up his whole life to have that treasure. Everyone else is indifferent about an old, dusty, worthless field. But the disciple says, I will die to have this field because everything that God has for me in this life and in the next is in that field. I must have that field. From joy, with joy, I will give up everything to have this field. Did you ever consider the fact that one of the main differences between being a Christian and not being a Christian is the ability To rightly assess the value of things. What is the difference between the person who hears the gospel and accepts it with joy and the person who rejects it with contempt? What is the difference between the person who's willing to lay down his life to follow Jesus and the person who would not give two cents to follow Jesus? This is the difference. The difference is the powerful, illuminating work of the spirit, which takes spiritually indifferent sinners and makes them able to see the treasure hidden in the field. It is the spirit of God in you, enabling you to see what no one else can see and convincing you that nothing is to be preferred to this treasure. If you are looking at the gospel of King Jesus, crucified and raised for sinners, and you are indifferent to it, you don't see any value in it, that is evidence of the Spirit's absence in you. But if you are viewing the cross of King Jesus as the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, that is the evidence that the Spirit of God is alive in a well in you. So you test yourself here. Is there an indifference to the things of God in you? Is there a contempt in your heart for God's revelation? Or do you find God's revelation to you in Christ and in this word to be life and joy to you? Your feelings about this revelation reveals just about more about you than anything else. The Spirit of God is opening your heart to the things of the Spirit. Test yourself. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. You know what that means? The Christian has the ability through the Spirit to rightly assess the value of things. But nobody is really in a position to rightly assess the value of the Christian and his passion for Christ and for Christ's kingdom. The world may view the Christian as a fool for giving away his life for a worthless field. But Paul is saying about the world, what do they know? They don't have eyes to see what's valuable and what is it. So the Christian is himself judged by no one. He's not rightly assessed by anyone. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, the first part of verse 16 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 13. Paul invokes it here to call into question the world's judgment of Christians. The world cannot rightly assess the value of the Christian and the kingdom he loves because the world doesn't understand the mind of the Lord. God's secret wisdom remains hidden from them. So even as they claim to be wise, they are pawing around in the dark as fools. They can't tell up from down in God's world. And they are in no position to pass judgment on God's people. God's people, on the other hand, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. The spirit of God who makes known to us the things freely given to us by God is the spirit of Christ himself. We are able to appraise things as Christ appraises things because we have Christ's spirit within us. Do you see what Paul's saying here? The gospel hidden, the gospel revealed, the gospel rejected have you stopped to consider in light of all this how great the grace of god is toward us every one of us was at one point pawing around in the dark without hope and without god in the world For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the what? You recognize I'm reading from Titus now, right? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, is this not what God has done for us and in us? I wonder, though, if there are others who are here listening to all of this and you're hearing what I'm saying and you are becoming aware of the fact that you have not rightly assessed the value of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. You are not spiritually appraising these things. But you're having a worldly appraisal of these things. Maybe there's somebody in here You're listening to this and you're thinking, maybe all is not well in me and has it been well in me. Perhaps you have not trusted Christ as the treasure hidden in the field. And I want to speak to you for a moment and say maybe God has brought you here today to change that. And maybe God intends this message to be for you a fork in the road. And he does not intend for you to walk out of here the same person that you were when you came in. So look, here, if that's you, I want you to understand what the fork in the road is. It is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. You are a sinner. You are by nature indifferent to these things. And the reality of God's plan, predetermined plan for the world is hidden from you until God makes it known to you. Now, he has revealed this to us through the apostles, and he is now making this known to you. There is nothing you can do to earn this. That Jesus died to pay for your sins. That Jesus was raised to guarantee your eternal life. That you can have peace and reconciliation and forgiveness from God. There's nothing you can do to deserve any of that. The message is simply this. You just have to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. That's what the message is. You just turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, and the Scripture says that you will be saved. So perhaps that's what God is doing in this message for you today. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would help your people to be changed and transformed by this word. Help us to un- ourselves as, understand ourselves as by nature just pawing around in the dark. Help us to have the humility to know that everything we have has just been given to us by grace. You were hidden from us and you made yourself known to us. And by your spirit, you caused us to awaken to the things of God. Father, won't you humble us by that? Make us ever grateful because of that? Give us a fire in our bellies to make this known to the nations because of that. Father, do all all those things and more in us because of these truths. Father, I pray for those who are here who don't know you. And they have been indifferent to you, even though maybe they've heard your revelation for many years. I pray that you would convict them of sin, awaken them, and cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God. Let them awaken and walk from this room different. And Father, we pray for you to do all these miraculous things through your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.